Hello and welcome to Micromaterialism episode of the Materialism Podcast, where we take a material science concept and we break it down to a bite-sized chunk in 15 minutes or so. My name is Taylor Sparks, and I'm an associate professor of material science and engineering at the University of Utah. And today I'm joined by my audio extraordinaire, Jared Duffy. How are you doing, Jared? I'm doing good. Excited for this episode. Hey, where's Andrew at today? He is off in Idaho. You know, luckily, he first of all, he made us record the episode, <laughs> the main one, like first week of uh, this month. He really wanted to get on it. People are going to think they're going to get suspicious. Where are we hiding Andrew? Literally, Where right? Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry. He is alive. Okay. We have a super cool episode today. It's a continuation of a previous episode. If you go back a few episodes to our episode on fracture and failure and how that was tied into wildfire, an unlikely correlation there, we have an equally interesting one here. Today we're talking about fracture and aviation disasters. So, obviously, when you think about airplanes today, you really rarely think about the amount of crashes. You know, crashes still do happen, but it's it's something that's extenuating circumstances, something that no one could have stopped, or something where we don't truly understand where things just kind of disappear. But that wasn't always the case. There was a point where planes were not the safest yeah. things to fly in. In the early days of aviation, it was not so, yeah, sure thing that you were going to land safely. Yeah. So, let's dive into that. Before we do it, though, I've got to give you a little bit of the science background, and we're going to talk about fracture mechanics, a topic that is near and dear to my heart because it is one of the hardest classes I ever took. It's actually the only class I withdrew from. I was, it was in grad school, and I was so embarrassed because my PhD advisor is really well-known for mechanics, fracture mechanics. Mm -hmm. And I took this class, and I was like, <laughs> it was right <laughs> over my head. So I actually had to withdraw from it. Not a proud moment, but I've learned much more about it since. And today's episode, to get to the science, we got to go way back, way, way back to World War One. So we've got 1921, Alan Arnold Griffith, more commonly known as A.A. Griffith. He's an aeronautical engineer for the Royal Air Force, right? And he's doing his work on lots of things, but this particular area of fracture mechanics kicks off when he has these two interesting observations. He's working on bulk glass, and they know that the stress needed to break this glass is like 100 megapascals. And yet, if you calculate, and they knew how to do this, the theoretical stress based, based off of the, like the bond strength it was drastically higher, something like 10,000 megapascals. So it's supposed to break at 10,000. It's breaking at 100. There's a problem here, right? And he set out to try and understand it. Now, his theory was this. There must be flaws present in your material that are responsible for the strength reduction, okay? So to start testing it, he would actually take and he would scribe little flaws right onto the surface of the, of the glass, right? He'd scrape them and put these sharp little flaws. And sure enough, as you change this flaw size, it made them weaker or stronger. The bigger the flaws, the weaker the material. So he develops a theory based off of linear elasticity theory that essentially says that at the tip of that crack, if it's if it's you know infinitely sharp crack, then you get an infinite increase in stress at the tip. And therefore, that's why it's failing at a lower stress than what you think you're applying because actually locally, it's actually quite higher. That's the theory. Mm -hmm. Now, this was not a perfect approach, and he knew it wasn't, and he was looking for something more fundamental. So he moved towards a thermodynamic model, which I think is so great. Here's his concept. He says, okay, as you're stretching a material, let's say you're pulling it apart, you're stretching those bonds. They're now uncomfortably far apart from one another, right? We call that lattice strain, right? That's lattice strain energy, right? So when a crack grows, when a crack breaks, it's relieving that lattice strain energy, right? The right. atoms get to go back to their happy spot. And so you're actually, that is driving the crack to go forward from a thermodynamic standpoint. That's favorable in terms of energy. Mm -hmm. So why would it ever not go forward, right? If you're just going to keep on relieving strain, cracks should just always grow, but they don't. 
And he realized that the reason that they don't is because on one hand, you have lattice strain energy moving it down in energy. Yeah. On the other hand, as you push that crack forward, it's opening up new surfaces, right? Now you have, a, you have two surfaces where you had none before. And we know about surfaces that they have energies, right? Surface energy. You're probably familiar with that term. So the idea is this, that it's a balance between the surface energy that gets created by a crack moving mm-hmm. forward and the lattice energy that gets, you know, this elastic energy that gets uh, reduced by the crack moving forward. So he was really clever. He basically said, okay, I can calculate the change in my free energy by just taking the difference. The surface energy minus this elastic energy and failure is going to occur at any point if the free energy reaches a peak value and then starts to go down, it's never going to stop going down basically. It's just going to keep on moving down. And so it's always going to be more and more favorable for that crack to keep on growing. It's, it reminds me of nucleation, right? So in, in when we talk about material science, if you learn about homogeneous or heterogeneous nucleation, these little clusters of atoms come together. And if they reach a certain size... They don't shrink again. They don't dissolve away. They'll just keep growing. It's the same thing with this critical flaw size of a crack, right? If it reaches a certain size, it will grow spontaneously. I mean, you don't have to apply a stress anymore. Mm-hmm. It will just crack all the way through on its own. It's so crazy when you read through that and you realize that l- he figured all of this out by scratching glass. Right? In 1920. That's a smart guy. Just nuts. Um, anyway, so yeah, this was the start of it. Again, we are 1920. He does, there's more to this and we're sort of skipping it that one of the key things he calculates is this so-called energy release rate. So he can actually calculate the rate at which energy, uh, gets absorbed by the growth of the crack. And even though this was pretty amazing, it doesn't really go anywhere for 30 years. It sits on the shelf for 30 years. It wasn't until 1950 that somebody took a look at this model again and propose some changes. Now, the reason why people didn't use it right from the get-go is because glass is a pretty unique material in terms of mechanical properties. Anybody who's, you know, bent a paperclip and then tried to bend a glass rod, you know the difference. One is extremely brittle and it will shatter, and one is pretty ductile. And that was the exact problem. Uh, Most engineering structural materials like steel can actually accommodate a fair bit of inelasticity, right? They can be plastically deformed, and that would violate the premise of Griffith's linear elasticity theory. So along comes George Rankine Irwin, G.R. Irwin, as he's more commonly known, and he proposes uh, a pretty major update to Griffith's approach that would work for some of these other interesting materials. He was working at the Naval Research Lab, Washington, D.C., 1950s, um, and he did this. He said, okay, if you've got a ductile material... When you apply a load, even though the whole thing might only look like it's deforming a little bit, in the vicinity near the crack tip, you end up with what's called a plastic zone. And in that zone, it might be deforming quite a lot, actually. I was going to say, talk about someone who's meant to be a scientist with that middle name. Right, Rankin? I saw that too. But uh, yeah, the idea is like, you know, as you're... The, the total energy, this is accounts for that difference in energy that they were observing, is there's extra energy going into plastic deformation, right, at the crack tip, right? Mm-hmm. So he proposed, the, the key change that he proposed to Griffith's system is just to uh, include an additional term that accounted for this plastic energy deformation, basically. Yeah, so the, the ductile material, basically. Now, one last thing before we move on is G.R. Irwin developed the so-called stress intensity factor. So let's say I've got a, a material, a paperclip, and I'm applying a stress to it. Now, in the vicinity of a crack, what he said is, well, near that crack tip, the stress that you're applying actually gets multiplied. And the amount that it gets multiplied by is the stress intensity factor, right? And therefore, it's going to grow, even though the overall stress isn't large, at the crack tip, it's actually larger. And so then he said, all right, there must exist a 
critical stress intensity factor that will lead to fracture. If that stress intensity gets over some critical value, you get failure. So anybody who's taken material science and engineering, when you learned about fracture toughness, you remember the, the term that you called it. It was called K1C. K stands for the stress intensity factor. One stands for mode one fracture, which is just a geometry of how you're breaking your material. There's different modes. You can twist it or bend it or whatever, right? So this is mode one. And then C stands for critical, meaning if your critical stress intensity factor, if it, if it goes over that critical value, it will now break. And this was the concept that he put forward that we still learn in our introductory material science classes today. So this is all nice and good. Uh, the key concept here then is if your cracks are smaller than this critical value, the critical flaw size, if you will, we should never have any failure, right? What's wrong with that approach, Jared? I am going to go to an example that I love. It's from chapter 14 of a book called Forensic Engineering and Engineering Fiction by Henry Petrosky. So I had to read this for my engineering communication class and we had to like do a summary. And, you know, that class was, wasn't terribly fun. But there was something so fun about this assignment because this story is so crazy. So we're going to be talking about the de Havilland Comet. De Havilland so, Comet, the airplane? Yeah, so this is yeah. the first ever commercial jet. And, you know, it's, so it starts out pretty good. And then May 2nd, 1953, one explodes at the Dum Dum Airport in India. It's unclear what happened. They're not sure. So they see the tails broken off. But they go, oh, it broke off after fire had started. And there were some storms, like, gusts going all the time. So clearly the storm broke something or some overcorrection caused an issue. So a fluke. Yeah. They basically said yeah, the so fire, whatever. you know, mitigating circumstance, that's they why had, it happened. They really couldn't decide on something. They said, it's okay. And I really like, uh, actually, what the author kind of talks about in this when he says that they say it flew off the drawing board because they never prototyped this. They drew it up. They did the math and said, cool, good to go. Oh, gosh. Yeah. For a plane that's going to carry people. Oh, and also sick. the first of its kind, too. It's not even like there was no real research done on these jets with the exclusion of like the fighter jets which were just starting out. So, you know, they think it's a fluke, whatever. A few months go by. January 10th, 1954. Clear skies, nothing wrong. At 27,000 feet, one explodes. Just into a million pieces over the Elba Mediterranean. Oh, jeez. The You're issue is, find it yeah. Then. They do then. They say, okay, it's in the water. We're done for. There's no point. So they're getting a little worried, but they can't figure it out. So they say, fine, we'll keep going. Not even five months later, April 8th, 1954, blows up again over on its way to London. Now that falls in water so deep that there was no chance. So they say, okay. Yeah, ground something's them. up at this point. They ground them all. And this is so funny what they do. They take balsa wood models of it and they just start blowing them up over maps to see okay where would it fall what would happen what would change is there all these mathematical models on the second crash because they know that that's their best bet and so this is where it gets insane they find the tail what's on the tail it's the newspaper from that day what is like sticking to the metal or what no it was imprinted on it the ink and had hit it so hard it left a mark showing what was on it because these are going that fast yeah and so they say okay Something's wrong. How did a newspaper get from inside to outside to hit the tail? And so that's when they say they're all grounded. We're done. And what's crazy right. is... I see, I see. Because this means that it happened while it was still traveling fast. Yeah. It wasn't like it crashed and then the newspaper got no. out. It must have been... This was a oh, yeah, wow, midair. Okay. And so the original plan was scrap it all. We're done. And then this one engineering group had this 
at the time, kind of crazy idea where they said, let's get a massive pool, put it underwater, put motors under the engines, and fire the motors on and off to move it, the wings, while also repressurizing and depressurizing the cabin full of water over and over again. Bonkers. Because, you know, the fluid mechanics versus air. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's sort of accelerated testing here. Yeah. And they go for a while, and about 3,000 or so cycles, nothing's going wrong. And then they notice a very tiny little crack in the window. And obviously that's worrying. What's more worrying is within a few flights, the crack grows along the whole entire wing. Poof. Wow. The whole okay. side blows out. So this is exactly what we were worried about, right? Cr- Griffith's fracture theory is, okay, keep your flaws small, smaller than the critical size, and you're fine. And now you're telling me re- under regular operations, that flaw can grow, 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 it's grow, grow. And all of a sudden, stuff. it's too big. Yeah. They realize that cyclical stress is something that they didn't account for, and it just slowly pushes it out. And then the issue is is that when you have this pressurized nature, if the crack growth is faster than the pressure, okay, it explodes. Yeah, okay, okay. And it's all because they were so worried about this idea of, okay, they knew it was going to be highly pressurized, and that's dangerous. But they were so worried that you needed to contain the pressure that all their math was in how do we contain it and not what is this pressure going to do to the metal? to the glass, to everything. They didn't realize that when you pressurize something, there's stress there. There's forces there. They weren't thinking about that, how much stress and force it'll put on it when you're rapidly depressurizing and repressurizing. Yeah, and we still pressurize our planes. Yeah. We've just figured out how to solve this problem. Yeah, and they they knew at the time, like they admit, yeah, we knew it was a problem, but they thought they had a solution. Yeah. They didn't realize that it was going to do this. And so they reworked them all, went through everything, fixed it, uh, one thing I really like is actually the guy who named the plane Bears to Haviland. He said, you know, we made a mistake and we recognize that. So the, the new plane we made, it isn't the whatever, whatever. It's the Comet again. It kept the same yeah. name. They didn't because, rebrand it. Because it's the Comet 4. Because he knew that. That's cool. You want you got to keep the brand alive. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if it's a good business decision. Yeah. But, I mean, it's admirable that he's like, yeah, we own it. But look, we've made a change and we're going to stand by our engineering. So there's this fun little story attached here. It's about a guy named Neville Norway. If you like sci-fi, you may know him. He wrote a book called On the Beach. He also wrote A Town Like Alice. They're pretty well-known books. He does a lot of stuff. He actually used to be an engineer, and he worked at de Havilland in the 20s as a stress calculator. He also had his own firm. He even ended up at, like, some royal academy for engineering. He's a pretty smart guy. So did any of this come into a science fiction? he wrote on the side, and he wrote a book called No Highway, published in, like, I think it was 1948. And it follows this engineer who was investigating this plane that blows up in Canada. And he says, oh, I think there's something wrong because there's this new metal alloy, and I think this tail blew off because of stress, and no one believes him. The company doesn't believe him. And so he goes, okay, I need to fly to Canada to see the plane crash. And he gets on the plane, and then it's, it's kind of silly. But he, uh, he realizes the plane he's on is that plane, and it's at the exact oh, amount cool. of time before it fails. And so he, you know, does a big dramatic thing and grounds the plane, and he forces the uh, people to investigate the plane. And, of course, there's a crack on the wing, and he's like, oh, I saved everyone's life. But it's, how cool he wrote yeah. this five years before yeah. this happened at the planes that he was working on. That's what's crazy. Oh, he that's was cool. And you can tell because he was a stress calculator. He knew what he was doing, and it's so crazy that he just happened to guess what was going to happen. That's rad. The thing that really pushed this idea into big mainstream appeal, and by that I have it written here, aka government give lots of money appeal, uh-huh. 
was there's a plane called the F-111 Aardvark. And one crashed, and it crashed kind of a little earlier than they expected, but it wasn't a big deal. But the issue was is that a second one crashed with 100 hours of flying yeah, under his belt. That's a baby then. Yeah, and they were like, okay, clearly something's wrong. So they ground all the jets, and they were kind of in the design phase. And so they realized, yeah, there's a crack growing. And so this leads to the military saying, okay, we need to understand what we're doing and start combating these cracks. And so this leads to a bunch of money being spent to the point where I think later on it even leads to a DARPA initiative being started just for... Well, it's interesting. Think of Griffith and Irwin, who we talked about previously. Yeah. Royal Air Force, Mm -hmm. Naval Research Laboratory. There is so much research that comes out of of initially what is defense funding. Yeah, and I mean, because it makes sense. Because if there's one thing you don't want to break, it's either civilian aircraft or military aircraft. Something that's flying a lot of people. Yeah. And so that's kind of what leads to, yeah, a lot of the research. And today, our modern understanding came from as awful as it is, these terrible crashes. It's wild. Well, we hope that you enjoyed this episode. We had a lot of fun learning about it. Uh, we're going to do a series of other micro-episodes on fatigue and fracture. Uh, there are some tragic but fascinating stories that we're going to get to. I think things like the Titanic and others that we have uh, plans to cover. Um, before we go, we just want to throw a big shout-out to our sponsors. Uh, Matt Match. you've heard us. You've heard us talk about these companies. We love Matt Match. We use MapMatch. I use it when I have my students pick materials when we're making something in our laboratory. I always start with using MapMatch. I found it just be an incredible resource. It helps engineers find providers for the materials that they're interested in. Are you interested in some sort of carbon fiber, some aluminum alloy, some glass material? You name it. Likelihood that you're going to be able to find it is pretty good. And it's a really easy-to-use platform. It's free for you to use. If people want to list their materials on there, get in touch with MapMatch, and you could have your materials listed on there to the growing number of engineers that are using that platform. The Materials and Podcast is also sponsored by Materials Today. And it's so funny because one of the books that I reference in here, I was going to find it, and of course, what do I see? It's published by Elsevier. No surprise there. They publish a ton of great stuff. They publish so many great things. They have really good things that are from the 1960s, but also stuff that's relevant today. They have some fantastic articles. So I will link the uh, books that I reference there. And if you have an Elsevier account, you can go check them out. You can also head over to Elsevier.com to find more about their journals, books, conferences, and related programs. Yeah. Now, big thanks to the people that make the show possible. The you know Obviously, we're here today recording, but there's a lot of work that goes into editing the episodes and working on that and also making the music for the episodes. We appreciate that. If you want to give them uh, some support, Alphabot and Colobite do some really cool stuff. You can find them on Bandcamp and Spotify and elsewhere. We also would... Yeah, I know we ask us a lot, but please, please give us as many iTunes reviews as possible. To the two people who said Jared rocks in the Jared episode, <laughs> I see you. How much did he pay you? That's yeah. what I want to know. I sent it in the group <laughs> chat, and I said, these are the two listeners with the most taste. <laughs> we, so, we peaked at number two. We did. We've hit number two in the chemistry category, which is mind-boggling. But you know what? We want number one. We could hit number one. We could do it. I think we can outpace all those big wigs, all that money. We've got it. The <laughs> spark shed is all you need. Hey, and if you've got ideas for an episode, we always want to hear them. Hit us up on Instagram at materialism.podcast, or you can send us an email if you're that kind of person who sends an email, uh, materialism.podcast at gmail.com. We check it pretty regular. Thanks for being there. We'll see you guys next time. See you guys next time.